Welcome back, everyone, to the St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast. This is Stefan Voyer. As always, we are supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. I'll introduce the participants today, and then we are going to hear a great case presented by Janet Simons. So, immediately to my left, Barry Casson. How are you, Barry? Perfect. That was a weird way of saying that, Barry. <laughs> Lawrence Chow, how are you? In a bit of a post-call fog today, okay. but otherwise well. Okay. You'll come off the bench and help us out. Janet? Yes, hi. Good, how are you? I'm great. I'm pretty excited about this case today. Nikki, you're good? Thumbs up, Nikki. Okay, let's hear it. All right. So uh, this is a 53-year-old woman who was referred to internal medicine from a head and neck surgeon. Uh, The head and neck surgeon had had her referred to him from a urologist. So perhaps we'll start at the beginning before internal medicine got involved. So this is a relatively healthy woman with a history of hypertension on ramipril uh, and enlodipine, well-controlled, type 2 diabetes on metformin with a recent A1C of 6.8%. She takes some omeprazole for heartburn. She's a previous smoker, quit 10 years ago with a 40-pack year history. And uh, besides metformin, enlodipine, and ramipril as omeprazole, she takes just some vitamin D, 1,000 units daily, and otherwise eats a fairly well-rounded diet. So she met her urologist because over the last year or so, she presented to the emergency room over 10 times for sudden onset severe flank pain, uh, which was subsequently found to be related to nephrolithiasis. She, over the last year, has received six rounds of lithotripsy with varying degrees of success, and multiple CTKUBs have shown multiple bilateral stones in, in her kidneys between two and four millimeters. She's otherwise been okay. She did a couple years ago have a episode of idiopathic pancreatitis. And when you really get into her medical history, there's maybe some question of a bipolar disorder or some neuropsychiatric symptoms that are ill-defined, but she's never been on any lithium or any other psychotropic medications. So the reason the urologist referred her to the head and neck surgeon was because the urologist felt that the multiple bilateral kidney stones were probably related to her mild persistent hypercalcemia. I'll give you a couple sets of labs here. So this is the pattern of her uh, laboratory findings, which has been fairly consistent over the last year with her multiple presentations. Her creatinine is 52, so totally normal. Her total calcium is elevated at 2.67, with the upper limit of normal being 2.58. Her magnesium and phosphate are within normal limits, with the magnesium being towards the lower end of the normal spectrum, and the phosphate being uh, 1.1, where the lower limit of normal is 0.8, and upper limit is 1.6, so pretty smack dab in the middle. Her ionized calcium is 1.33, with the upper limit of normal being 1.29. Based on this, obviously, they got a PTH and a vitamin D. Her vitamin D level, the first time they measured it, was 65, which the lower limit of normal is 75, so just on the lower uh, end of normal. And her PTH was 3.6, with a reference interval of 1.3 to 6.8 picomoles per liter. So I'll stop there and maybe get some initial thoughts. I like it. I'm already into it. Lots of nice little things to, to chew on. Lawrence, you want to you want to take a swing? Yeah, I'll take a stab at it. So this patient has mild hypercalcemia and has metabolic complications with renal stones and maybe some cognitive changes, query bipolar in the past. I, I certainly think that the calcium is relevant here. 
But the question is, what's driving the elevated calcium? PTH is a bit elevated. And so really, the differential in my head right now is whether this is primary hyperparathyroidism or familial hypercalciuric hypercalcemia. Did I get that right? It's hypocalciuric. But the PTH is in the normal range, right? 3.6? It's in the normal range. It's it's, it's not suppressed. It's even in maybe like... You know, low really the you know yeah. the middle, middle of the, of the normal range. range, maybe a little bit on the low side, but but you would expect yeah. someone to suppress their PTH with these calcium levels. Certainly, yeah, I okay. think so. Even with the mild elevation, this PTH is inappropriately normal. Yeah. Okay. So I think the question that Lawrence brings up is a really good question. So the question I would have is, does she have a family history of uh, problems? Of of problems? Uh, well, everybody, I guess, has problems. <laughs> Does she have a family history of hypercalcemia? And does she have siblings? So she doesn't have any family history that she knows of, of anyone having hypercalcemia or frequent kidney stones or any other sort of bone density issues or or hyperparathyroidism. So, yeah, I mean, I would say like at the beginning of this case, but I would say all cases, we want to try to cast a net that's that's broad enough that we're not going to miss anything, but that is not so broad that... We're just dealing with tons of noise. So the hypercalcemia, it's mild, and it appears to be non-PTH dependent hypercalcemia. So I think all I would call it for now is that. It doesn't fit the pattern that I usually see of primary hyperparathyroidism with PTHs that are a little bit higher. And I'm also not sure yet if I can tie in the recurrent nephrolithiasis with the hypercalcemia necessarily, although it like, sounds reasonable that it could be related. So right now, the calcium is probably the thing that I would tackle first. I agree. I think, though, the, the pattern of referral bears some conversation. A urologist referring to an ENT person for hypercalcemia sounds to me like either there's an answer and a solution that the ENT person is going to provide, or we have an expert ENT person who's in the wrong field and should be in medicine doing hypercalcemia. I, I think that one, you know, for me, that one could just be a whiff. Like, maybe it's, maybe they're golf buddies. Maybe. <laughs> but it is interesting, um, you know, maybe surgeons are just more likely to f- refer to other surgeons. But I perhaps, I mean, what my read of the of this situation was that the urologist has seen many people with recurrent nephrolithiasis with hi- and hypercalcemia. And in their experience, it's often related to primary hyperparathyroidism. And so... They would refer to head and neck surgeon for consideration of parathyroidectomy, and that's what they did in this case. And it was the head and neck surgeon who called internal medicine to say, this doesn't quite fit the pattern that I'm used to seeing in people with primary hyperparathyroidism. Now, I guess before you cut into this patient's neck, I think the next test that we want to order is a 24-hour urine calcium. Okay. And quantify whether this person is hypercalciuric or hypo. And I'm suspecting that if they have renal stones, they probably have high calcium in their urine. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Yes, that seems like a reasonable idea. And in fact, the urologists love doing 24-hour urine everythings. Uh, So we have the following things were measured in this patient's 24-hour urine. Calcium, magnesium, citrate, oxalate, sodium, phosphate, and urate. Of those, the 24-hour urine calcium was 8.5 millimoles per day. And we can talk about sort of what we would expect in a a minute. The urine magnesium was on the low side of 2.5 millimoles per day of the reference interval of 3 to 5. The urine citrate was on the high side of 6.2 with an upper limit of normal of 4.9. And the oxalate, sodium, phosphate, and urate 
excretion were all normal. That 24 calcium sounds normal. The magnesium sounds appropriately on the low side because the serum magnesium was a little the on the low side. serum magnesium is on the lower end of normal, yeah. so, so it's that... probably not unreasonable, yeah. Yeah. So the 24-hour urine calcium, you asked for it because you wanted to rule out FHH. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, but please don't look at me like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, my question is, do you know how, like, so is 8.5, is that... High, normal, low, what do we expect in FHH, and what does 8.5 mean to us? It, I mean, it should be low in FHH, yep. um, but I, yeah, I'd, I'd I, need to know what the arrow says on the screen or what <laughs> color the, the uh, number appeared in on the screen. I, I, I think if it's normal, it also doesn't rule out FHH, but it, if it's low, that is helpful. Sure. So usually for FHH, we'd expect the 24-hour urine calcium excretion to be less than 5 millimoles per day. And in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, their urinary calcium excretion is usually 6 to 7, depending on the patient's gender. So 8.5 is actually quite high, even higher than you'd expect to see in primary hyperparathyroidism. Okay. I'm not sure that I've made any progress here, but I'm still, <laughs> I, I still think the calcium is, is it's not on its own going to give us the answer, but I feel like if we solve the calcium, we're going to go a long way to, to solving this problem. <clears throat> I, Maybe I a question is, do we know what the stones are made of? So they are calcium oxalate stones. Yeah. See, this is where I would consult one of my medicine golf buddies, call up my local nephrologist, get some help. Really? Oh, I, I'm, still, I'm still going uh, this one on my own. Okay, I mean, so I think on your own nephrology, <laughs> I personally was going to call an endocrinologist. but I'm, I'm here... To learn. Very <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this one on my own so far. Like, I, okay. I think the thing that I want most is to think through, I'm sort of going through my log of all the hypercalcemic patients that I've seen in the last 15 years and thinking, what were the common etiologies in otherwise well, fairly well, 53-year-old women? I would say thiazide diuretics are, are pretty common. She's not on that. And then everything else will hinge on understanding her history a little bit more. Like, is there something in the history that that we're unaware of some harbinger of, of granulomatous disease or malignancy that will give us a clue. Uh, there was really nothing that sounded that like so, that yeah, in our history. It was, I mean, so, so you're thinking about, in terms of your differential for hypercalcemia, you're thinking about things related to granulomatous disease, so sarcoid. So specifically, you're thinking about increased conversion of 25-hydroxy vitamin D to 125. Yeah. And then you were thinking about malignancy, so you're thinking about... PTHRP. PTHRP, okay. Um, so those are two really good differentials, and that's definitely where we went next. How would you investigate those, I guess? I mean, and so there's nothing else on history that suggests she's got, like, a malignancy brewing? No, so, you I mean, did a really good physical exam. So there's um, no cervical lymphadenopathy. There is um, nothing to suggest any malignancy. Um, she does have a 40-pack year history of smoking. And they actually did do a CT head and neck. The head and neck surgeon did when he did the Sestimibi parathyroid scan. He also did CT head and neck. So there's no abnormal lymph nodes on that scan. And for what it's worth, there is no hot parathyroid nodules either. Uh, she did have an, an, a DEXA scan that was uh, totally normal. Good bone density. And that's good for like pagets or something like that? It would be, yeah, if you had some vitamin D-dependent rickets or something like that. Great. Yeah. But, but this lady's had... 10 presentations over the last year, which suggests that her renal calculi are symptomatic over the last year. With no other, it's hard to think of a malignancy that's present with her presenting with just this symptom complex. 
and not other symptoms that would suggest a malignancy. Now, it's possible, I suppose. Not myeloma? I don't think so. I mean, it's, I suppose it's possible, but renal calculi presenting in a myeloma patient, I, I guess it's possible. But So I'm, I'm still thinking, and I recognize that you're presenting the case, so it's probably not so. I would have still felt, still feel that this is hyperparathyroidism based on her urinary calcium, based on her PTH that isn't suppressed, and her serum calcium in an otherwise well person who has calcium oxalate stones. Okay, so these are some good thoughts. So is this really just primary hyperparathyroidism that is maybe not totally typically presenting, but you know, something common presenting a little bit atypically? Or is this a fairly rare syndrome of PTH-related peptide associated with presumably maybe some small cell lung cancer or something that we're just not finding? I think in theory, you could produce enough PTHRP from a small tumor to cause a presentation like this without, you know, a rip-roaring big cancer. But that being said, the handful of times where I've seen PTHRP, first of all, in the lab, we've been, we, we are often asked to send PTHRP out, and I think I've only ever seen one ever really be positive in a couple dozen that we have sent. Um, I do believe I've seen a couple cases of PTHRP, but usually in those, in those two cases, I should say, that I have seen, the diagnosis is so obvious and the malignancy is so obvious that we don't even actually send the test. We should just remind the audience that uh, Dr. Simons is a medical biochemist. Yes, so if I'm going a bit too lab geeky, but this this case I'm uh, maybe will foreshadow goes a little bit lab geeky on us. So, but I, no, I, I do think Barry's right. I sort of just I, I totally agree with Barry. I just um, had kind of taken for granted that a nuclear scan of the parathyroid had been done by the ENT and it was negative. But I don't know. Am I wrong? No, you're right. Yeah, had, yeah. So the parathyroid test maybe was normal. Um, and is that is that a good rule out test? I think so. I think so. I'm not okay. sure the operating mm-hmm. characteristics of that test, so I don't mm-hmm. think, first of all, it's certainly not 100% sensitive. I, the specificity, I'm not certain about. That's but I, 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 I do agree with, with Dr. Kasten, just thinking about what is this patient's presenting illness. You know, when it's renal stones, I also jump to hyperparathyroidism, whereas if someone's coming in with symptomatic hypercalcemia, neurologic disorder, very high calciums, that's usually the presentation that I associate with malignancy. So um, so the internist seeing this patient had many of the same thoughts that we're having. So in addition to the head and neck CT that was done, a CT chest was done, as well as a mammography for age-appropriate cancer screening, both of which were unremarkable. Um, and then they repeated all of the biochemistry, including a 125 vitamin D. So I'll just give you guys those now. And this perhaps will help clarify some of our theories. So uh, a a couple months after um, the head and neck surgeon's original referral, a repeat set of blood work showed total calcium that remained elevated at 2.64. Ionized calcium was now 1.39, so even higher. Again, the upper limit of normal 1.29. PTH was now 1.8. So again, the lower limit of normal is 1.3. So PTH was even further suppressed than previously. Vitamin D25 was 88, so just above the lower limit of normal of 75. And the 125 dihydroxy vitamin D was 167. And the reference range for that is 40 to 170 picomoles per liter. And a repeat 24-hour urine calcium was 10.4 millimoles per day now. So we're advancing slowly. Uh, with her urine reflecting more than her serum, if, if well, I suppose both, uh, and clinically, I assume nothing has changed. 
No, uh, nothing has changed. She did have, between these two sets of bloodwork, one more episode of uh, flank pain and, and lithotripsy, but nothing else has changed in her presentation. I have to say that I'm still, I still think that she has hyperparathyroidism, and I think she may have an ectopic form, but I, I'm not convinced that she has, she certainly, we've ruled out vitamin D sensitive hyperparathyroid or hypercalcemia, and we haven't found any other source. What do we make of this this activated vitamin D that's just at the border of the high end of normal? It's normal. Is I it agree. though when she's hypercalcemic? I don't know. So is the regulation is the conversion of twenty five hydroxy vitamin D to one twenty five hydroxy vitamin D is that at all mediated by PTH and or the ionized calcium concentrations? Consult. Judging by the way you Ma- asked. <laughs> consult <laughs> medical <laughs> micro, yeah, consult yeah. A, a medical yes, biochemist. Yeah, so they called, they called me in the lab for this. Um, and the, the two questions. So the first question that they had was, is this 125 vitamin D level abnormal given the context? And yes, I, I think that it is. It should be suppressed. So what, why, whereas vitamin D concentrations are not usually driven by calcium, so you know if you're vitamin D deficient, of course that may be cause hypocalcemia, but usually hypercalcemia doesn't suppress your vitamin D25. It will and should suppress your 125 vitamin D, in part at least because PTH is part of the regulation system of that extra hydroxylation step in the kidney. I guess I'm also going to say, I rarely say this here, but I'm going to say it. I disagree with Barry. I do not think that this is primary hyperparathyroidism. And the reason that I'm saying that at this juncture is that the hypercalcemia is getting worse, but the PTH is going down. Mm-hmm. And and that's, again, I, I didn't feel like primary hyperparathyroidism, and now it feels less like it. So then the second question the internist asked was, could there be something that's acting like PTH that's not showing up on the assay? Or could the PTH actually really be very high, but there's some interference or some problem with the test? Because that would, if it could be high primary hyperparathyroidism, if the PTH was really 10 and there was just some interference with the assay. So that was um, the question that was given to us in the lab. That would be a question I would hope I would have asked, but I didn't ask. But I think it's a really good question. I think we take our lab values at, at face value. Yeah. I think this is something I've never heard of. Yeah, so maybe I'll geek out on you guys for a minute or two um, about some of the interferences that can occur, especially when you have tests that are measured by immunoassay. So immunoassays are like those ELISA assays where you might have remembered from biology class where you have a detection and a capture antibody. We use these tests in the lab to measure small um, peptide molecules usually. So basically anything that doesn't have a specific chemical reaction, usually the things that fall into this category are hormones. So everything from troponin, BNP, TSH, PTH, these are all small peptide molecules that we can identify with immunoassays. There's a lot of different things that can go wrong with immunoassays. Like, you know, you send a sample to the lab and you enter a black box and you expect the answer that comes out to be correct. But anything can happen anywhere along the line from samples getting mislabeled to reports getting sent to the wrong doctor. But in terms of the actual analytical problems that can occur, immunoassays are susceptible to two really specific ones. One is something called heterophile antibodies. So the antibodies that we use in the tests are grown up in different lab animals. They might be mouse anti-human or horse anti-human antibodies. And people 
can have circulating antibodies that just so happen to interact with those antibodies that we use in the tests. So any one person can just happen to have an antibody that shuts down a particular assay. So if we suspect this, and the way we suspect it is if a physician calls us and says, I have a test that just does not make sense in the clinical context, we have ways of treating those samples with heterophile blocking tubes to remove those interfering antibodies and potentially remove the interference. We can also just send the sample to a different lab that uses a different platform with different antibody setups. And so there might be an interference on our setup, but not their setup. Mm, I can't believe I didn't think of that. <laughs> I can totally believe I didn't think of it. Um, makes me worried. Barry's ridden a lot of horses in his life and probably has lots of anti-horse antibodies. So if we do any testing like that on Barry, we're going to have to be very I'm, careful. I'm excited now. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other one that I'll just mention, um, this is certainly these are certainly not the only things, but the, the other one that's sort of been in the news lately um, is biotin interferences. And that was actually the question that this internist called us with is, is could this be a biotin interference? And I think the reason that that came to mind was there was actually recently a little paper in CMAJ about biotin interference, but certain assay synth systems, like certain analyzers, like the one that we use here at St. Paul's, are use a biotin streptovidin assay platform. And basically what that means is if people take large doses, and I mean big doses, of biotin, it can actually raise serum biotin levels enough that it in interferes with the binding process that we use in our assays. And why why would anyone take such huge doses of biotin? So Why would anybody take? And, and what is biotin? <laughs> so biotin is a B vitamin. So it's a B3. And it's supposed to be really good for your hair, skin, and nails. Thank you. Um, so the total, like the daily recommended allowance of biotin is about 5 micrograms per day. I'm uh, sorry, milligrams per day. We're, we're seeing people take a gram a day or 2 grams a day. Um, and you can buy these over the counter, like off Amazon, these skin, hair, nail vitamins that are a gram a day that you're supposed to take for your skin, hair, and nails. So uh, especially in... Middle, younger and middle-aged women, it's reasonably common that people take this. So that was actually what this person who called the lab um, was asking about. This is such a good question. Yeah. Uh, and th and this, this came to light about the troponin assay in particular, but yeah, also some other There assays. was an unfortunate case here in British Columbia of a, of a patient actually passing away because of, a, uh, at least in part, due to a false negative troponin because of uh, biotin interferences. Yeah. Wow. Boy, should okay. be a black box warning on yeah. biotin. May it's available false over the negative counter, yeah. on your lab test. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the good news is that, I mean, if you think about it, it's very easy to get around this interference because biotin will clear out from the system within four to six hours. So you can just take the sample again in a couple of hours after, like, hmm. as long as it's not first thing in the morning wow. right after they took that pill. I love it. So we were able to rule out, um, in this case, we did not find any evidence of biotin interference or any sort of amino assay interference, but I just threw that in there. Cause Thank you. Oh, I oh like great. It. <laughs> hmm. So now we're looking for... Um, now we're looking for the zebras. Now we're looking for granulomatous disease or lymphoma, something that's going to raise activated, activated vitamin D levels. Okay. So I don't think we're going to get this because... I didn't. Um, <laughs> but so at the end of the day, this patient did not have any granuloma disease, sarcoidosis, malignancy. We actually sent the PTHRP and it was negative. What this patient had was a low level 
of 24-25 vitamin D. Why did we want, we went to the trouble of measuring by mass spec 24-25 vitamin D? Because 24-25 vitamin D is the waste product basically of 125. So if you are deficient in the enzyme that deactivates 125 vitamin D into 25-24 vitamin D, then you build up the activated vitamin D and you will get hypercalcemia. This was probably made worse by the fact that about three or four months before she started getting nephilithiasis, she started taking vitamin D supplementation. Wow. So just, just again, just sort of in, in case people are, didn't follow that last little bit, it's one of these CYP enzymes, so CYP2A1, that it converts your 125 vitamin D, which is the active form of vitamin D. After a certain amount of time, it's supposed to get broken down by this enzyme into this waste product, 2425. But if you are um, having heterozygous mutation in that enzyme, that conversion is suboptimal and you will build up 125 vitamin D and therefore look like you basically have a granulomatous disease. Something that's So we're getting these high normal levels of 125 hydroxy vitamin D, even though they should be suppressed by the hypercalcemia. Right, because the PTH is appropriately suppressed by the hypercalcemia, but what the PTH is not able to do is shut off the 124, 125 vitamin D because it's not a production problem, it's a destruction problem. There's not enough destruction of that activated vitamin D. I think this is great. I think, I think we often look at cases, and the clinical reasoning I think that we used is fairly accurate, but it just shows me that you need more than clinical reasoning. You need in-depth knowledge of biochemistry at times to solve problems. And I think this is a wonderful example of a laboratory solution to a clinical problem. Whereas usually we end up having multiple laboratory tests that are sometimes confusing the clinical problem. Yeah, so I, I, I like this case for obvious reasons. And then when I was preparing this case, I actually went and I found a review article about sort of unusual causes of hypercalcemia. And there's this whole section, hypercalcemia, associated with CYP24A1 mutations. And it perfectly described this patient in retrospect. So neuropsychiatric symptoms, hypertension, pancreatitis, um, no effect on bone density, variable degrees of hypercalcemia, low normal PTH, and an inappropriate 120, uh, 125-dihydroxy vitamin D concentrations. And then um, is it a, a family history of hypercalcemia or a personal history of overzealous vitamin D supplementation is often helpful. And then I'll just say the last line, the biochemical profile of hypercalcemia, low PTH, and elevated 125 vitamin D is indistinguishable from patients with endogenous overproduction of 125 vitamin D due to granulomatous disease or lymphoma. So we were, had a perfectly good diagnosis, but uh, and all the clinical symptoms lined up and would be the same, but uh, it was different cause. So it's really interesting. There, the vitamin D deficient patient, which was what we thought initially you, with the one with the 25 hydroxy, mm -hmm. is why she took her vitamin D at the suggestion, and that initiated all of the calculi? That seems to be sort of the clinical history, if you go back, is that someone measured her vitamin D for reasons that probably were not indicated, um, found it to be low, suggested that she take vitamin D supplementation, and a couple months later, she starts getting kidney stones. But this must be, there must be more to it than that. I mean, even patients who have known hyperparathyroidism for years may have renal calculi on occasion. 
but I mean, she's mass producing renal calculi, and you know, uh, so is there something else in this genetic makeup that has an association with production of calculi? Not that I have seen in my reading, and I, I, I can't come up with a physiologic explanation, but it's a good point. There's something obviously really affecting this renal excretion that seems above and beyond even the degree of hypercalcemia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do we have a name for this condition? It's really just inactivating ZIP24A1 mutations. It's very exciting. So just to close this out, um, treatment, I'm going to guess, is just vitamin D restriction. Like, it just stops the supplement. Exactly, yeah. Stop taking vitamin D, um, try to stay well hydrated, low calcium diet, etc. Sleep well, exercise yes. well, <laughs> have nice thoughts. Thank yeah. you. Thanks a lot, Jenna. That was, that was a really, really good case. That's cool. Great. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And thanks to all our participants. See you again next time on the St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast.